0: Good morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you dependent on your mercy, dependent on your spirit, dependent on the power of your gospel. Lord, we pray that at this time that your name would be glorified, that your church would be edified, and that sinners would repent and come to believe in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Today, me and these four men have been given the honor and privilege to share the word of God from Psalms chapter 32 with you. The context of this chapter is that it is one of the Psalms that were written after King David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, impregnated her, and murdered her husband, Uriah. Keep that context in mind as we dive into the word of God together. So please turn with me to Psalms chapter 32, and I'll be reading my verses, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. From these verses, we can learn from King David four types of sins or offenses against God, which are transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. But I would say most importantly, we can learn from these verses three ways in which God forgives these sins, helping us to have a clearer view of how complete forgiveness is in the Lord. So let's start off by going over three out of the four sins that David mentions and describe in what ways these sins were forgiven. In regards to the fourth sin, we'll come back to it at the end. The first sin that David mentions is transgression, which is derived from the Hebrew word pesha, which can mean apostasy or rebellion against God. An example of transgression is when David decided to commit adultery with Bathsheba. That was an act of rebellion against God and his commands. But in what way can God pardon transgression? It says that it can be forgiven, meaning to be taken off, taken away as a burden is being lifted, as sin is being removed. Let's move on to the second offense, which is sin. Sin is derived from the Hebrew word "kata," which means to miss the mark, to miss the aim. For the believer, one of the greatest aims is to live for God's glory and to obey his commands. And David missed this aim when he attempted to cover up his sins by trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that it would appear that the child inside Bathsheba was his. But in what way can God forgive a person's sin? It can be covered, literally meaning to cover so that it is no longer in the view of God. The third sin that David mentions is iniquity, derived from the Hebrew word avon, which means to be Twisted, bent, or perverted. Crooked behaviors away from the straight path in which we are called to live. When David created the plot which murdered Uriah, that was an act of iniquity against God. But just like the other sins, in what way can God forgive a person's iniquity? By counting them no more. Where all our debts are laid down, and where no longer our sins are accounted from these verses we see the various ways we can sin against god and in what way god can forgive those sins but we're left with a very important question which is how are those sins forgiven quickly turn with me to romans chapter 4 verse 5 through 8 once again Romans chapter 4, verse 5 through 8, where Apostle Paul answers that question by using the same verses from Psalms chapter 32, verse 1 and 2, and it reads, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as david also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom god counts righteousness apart from works blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man against whom the lord will not count his sin what that means is that we are forgiven From our sins and declared righteous before our God by faith and faith alone in Christ and not by works. And that makes sense. Because what good work or good deed could King David, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, do before a holy God to earn forgiveness? Nothing. But what about you? Have you lied? Have you lusted? Matthew 5 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you hated your brother? First John 3 15. Everyone who hated his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And what about all the other various sins you've committed against God? What good work Can you do to be forgiven before a holy God? There is nothing. We are at the mercy of a holy God, and He has given us the only way to be forgiven before Him, which is through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, the one who bore our sins on His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Faith in Christ the one who clothes us in his righteousness so that our sins are forever covered before the view of God. Faith in Christ, the one who rose from the grave, declaring his victory over our sin and death so that our sins will no longer be counted. And it is by faith we can confront the fourth sin, which is deceit, where we can come before God with no falsehood, but with a clear conscience because our hope is not in our works, not in our good deeds, but only in what Christ has done. To all of those who are listening, are you in transgression, in rebellion? Are you in sin, missing the mark? Are you in iniquity, perverse, and twisted behaviors. If so, turn away from those sins and run to Christ, who is the only one that can help you and where you can find forgiveness before Christ. In Christ, you will be blessed. You will be happy, knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven in Christ.
1: Good morning. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and then I, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. I think this word for in verse 3 in the original language means because let me tell you. David is saying because let me tell you. When I didn't deal with my sin, I was in a bad way. He kept silent indicating he did not want To deal with his sin issue. While you may be a Christian and in a state of no condemnation in Christ Jesus and are born again and are a nice person, maybe you're cool, maybe even a man or woman after God's own heart like King David, still we are practicing sinners and must determinedly approach God to confess our sins and repent of them. If we don't, we will be broken. Here's the problem. David writes, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. We may not say it that way. We we might say, man, I'm a wreck. I'm just not in a good place. But we know we're not well. The great way more spiritually evolved than I am, Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions for I do not for I do for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate wretched man that I am Listen God wants to be in a good place with us in good fruitful relationship Consequently he pursues Adam in the garden who tried like David to stay silent after his his devastating sin See There are two types of people in the world. Sinners who have had their sins dealt with and sinners who haven't. We're all born with a sin problem. David wrote, I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. He says, my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And in case we think we're exceptions, Paul writes in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. If you're a Christian, God chose you and saved you and redeemed you and justified you, amen. But knowing full well that you will continue to sin, being in this imperfect flesh. He's not ignorant. He didn't he didn't save you thinking now they probably won't sin anymore. They're good. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how you dress for church. If you're vaccinated, if you floss twice a day. While you are declared a saint and rightly identify as such. You sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have a conundrum. Even Paul asked, who will deliver me from this body of death? David's remedy, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, which we read earlier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And David affirms that. He says, I confessed my sin and you forgave my iniquity. By the way, you can only confess what you're convicted of. You can't confess your sin if you can't or won't acknowledge it. And we can't acknowledge it if we're oblivious to it. David writes, search me, Father, test me, know my heart. This is, this is crucial for us as a daily appeal to the Lord. In Jesus' model daily prayer, he instructs instructs us to pray, forgive me my trespasses. There is no asterisk or footnote after that. We're directed to pray this every day for a reason. And to be clear, confession is more than whoops, my bad. And repentance is more than whoops, I did it again. It has to be real. Confession and repentance is to be a real regular practice because our sin is a real regular practice first john again if we claim to be without sin in other words if we don't get it we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so we live out this glorious gospel practice every single day confession and repentance Is the gospel modus operandi from the time we are saved going forward? The gospel is not just a a one time service, sermon, or one time decision. Adultery in our hearts, pride, idolatry, hurtful words, little, little white lies, maybe a little, I can't stand him. Heartfelt confession and repentance admits this is my sin. Father, I did it. Not the the serpent, not the the woman, not the the missus, it was me, forgive me. God's heavy hand on David was due to his sin, but let me suggest that God's discipline was actually uh, an act of his love. Perhaps paradoxically, it's, it's tough kindness leading to repentance, John Calvin wrote that sometimes, listen, if we are not drawn by forcible means, we will never hasten to seek reconciliation to God earnestly. May we earnestly consider where the Lord would have us confess and repent and enjoy his blessed forgiveness. Amen.
2: I'll be reading verse six and seven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. The verse here begins with the word therefore. So, the first question I had was, What is the therefore, therefore? It's referring to the preceding verses of the Psalm. David saying, In light of the experience of forgiveness from the Lord after confessing my sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband and my restoration to fellowship with God, I encourage you to do the same. In David's confession in Psalm 51, He prays that God will cleanse me with hyssop, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And God did just that. Nathan the prophet tells him God has taken away your sin. Next, verse 6 tells us to pray in a time when you may be found. This may lead one to assume that there are only appointed times that God can be found or is listening. The interpretation is better understood in a different way. The phrase, when you may be found, literally means in the time of finding out. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, This time of finding out is the time between our sin and final judgment. Lose no time. Because when death cuts us off, it will be too late to seek him. Now is the accepted time. The godly pray while the Lord has promised to answer. The ungodly postpone their petition until the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and their knocking is too late. The time of finding out is the time while we are here on earth While God continues to offer grace and mercy, David exhorts us not to delay, because when death cuts us off, it will be too late to seek him. So, this verse is addressed to believers, exhorting them to pray to God, repent, and to do so now. Um, I I want to share a personal story that um, made this very real. really dear brother in the Lord a uh, friend of mine for decades found out on March 27th that uh, unbeknownst to him he had stage 4 cancer he's only 62 and he went to be the, with, with the Lord um, on Friday 60 days after he found out um, we don't know when what our time is with God and um so we should be diligent in our time on earth to work out our salvation, walking with God and growing in faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, At the acceptable time I have listened to you and helped you on the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The next part of the verse says, Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. The flood of great waters is used in the Bible many times to refer to times of calamity. The praying man or woman may face trials in this life, but will not face the ultimate calamity, the loss of their souls for eternity. That is the the ultimate calamity, um, losing your soul. Although floods will come into our lives, the destiny of our our souls for eternity is secure. Trouble can do us no real harm when the Lord is our Savior and is near us. Next, David says God is his hiding place. This is amazing because the same God whose hand was heavy upon him is now his hiding place and refuge. For us, the gospel of Christ's death on the cross in place of us makes him our refuge, who would otherwise be our judge. Just take that in. God has not only forgiven David, but now offers protection. The hiding place of refuge uh, often alludes to protection from enemies. For us, our enemy is Satan, who prowls around seeking to destroy us. God ultimately protects us. Paul tells us we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Finally, the songs of deliverance were songs sung by men when they had been delivered from peril. David is filled with songs of praise, having been delivered from his sin. After these verses, we see the word silah. Um, We see that in the Psalms in different places. This this word could be related to the direction in music to pause or rest. Some have indicated that it, it means to take in, to absorb. Um, since these verses and the psalm is so itself is so rich in meaning, and Psalm 1 tells us, "Blessed is the one who meditates on his law and word day and night, I think that that meaning fits best. Take it in really meditate on it. Um, So what are the applications from these two verses? We are urged to pray, to confess our sins, and maintain a right relationship with God. We're urged to do it now, to not delay. When we do, he's our hiding place and protection. And lastly, as um, Joel has pointed out and, and Eric, just consider that in this psalm, it's, it's David's emotion and story. He committed adultery, murdered his lo- his lover's wife, was disciplined, and found a God eager to forgive him. No one is beyond God's forgiveness who is willing to repent, turn from their sin, and come to him. Um, as I conclude my portion, I, I want to offer you just some things that I learned through doing this um, I'm not a preacher I'm, a, I'm an accountant <laughs> uh, but but seriously um, dig, digging deeper has really brought me close to God um, I've spent a few hours just on two verses and um, you know uh, I, I realize I need to do it more and I would encourage you to do that as well really dig and study um, as I reflect on my own life, I see that God has forgiven the many times that I've fallen short, that I've sinned. But I've also experienced his forgiveness and experienced him um, coming to my aid and being a refuge. And um digging deeper, just these two verses, it really has made me pause and absorb to the point where <clears throat> um, I've read this psalm, I don't know, uh, 50 times. Um, It sort of becomes part of you. And um, there is work that God does in your life uh, when you take time to do that. Thanks.
3: Good morning. I'm going to look at verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Psalm 32 is one of 13 Psalms known as a maskil, which is a Hebrew word for contemplation. It's a psalm worthy of meditation, as evidenced by the word selah, or interlude, appearing three times in only 11 verses. In fact, selah appears 71 times in 39 of the psalms. It is intended to be, as was mentioned, a time where we pause and consider what has been shared up to that point. And Psalm 32 is also denoting a song enforcing some lesson of wisdom or piety. It is also referred to as a didactic psalm, which is simply to say it is intended to teach or convey moral instruction. It's been reported that Augustine, the fourth century theologian and philosopher, considered this to be his favorite psalm. He had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died in order to meditate on it better. The British evangelist G. Campbell Morgan writes, that Psalm 32 is, quote, a song of a ransomed soul rejoicing in the wonders of God's grace. Sin is dealt with, sorrow is comforted, ignorance is instructed. Now, who exactly is speaking in these two verses? Well, there's been a difference of opinion among commentators as to the identity of the speaker. Some claim that due to his life experience, his close walk with God, and the wisdom that he no doubt had accumulated uh, <clears throat> that David qualifies as the speaker those proponents cite psalm 34:11 which reads come my children and listen to me and i will teach you to fear the lord in order to support their claim now there is truth in the supposition that the more mature a christian becomes the more qualified they might be to lead others in fact many of us have benefited from those type of interactions. However, consider the gravity of the statement, I will guide, I will instruct, or the even more imposing, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, the writing of this psalm, as been mentioned earlier, comes on the heels of David's sin with Bathsheba and its aftermath. Was David really in a position to make such a declarative statement? Charles Spurgeon, in his verse expositions of the Bible, offers this comment. David had a considerable amount of craft about him. He will henceforth tolerate himself in deceit. He must look elsewhere for guidance. He will need other direction, and he looks up for it. And see how our gracious God comes in with the promise of guidance. Spurgeon then concludes that thought by quoting Psalm 25:9 in the King James Version which reads The meek will he guide in judgment and the meek will he teach his way. Now there are other Bible verses that lend support to God's desire to take us by the hand and lead and direct. Consider Psalm 25 verse 8. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. Psalm 73:24 You will keep guiding me with your counsel. Proverbs 20, 24. How can we understand the road we travel? It is the Lord who directs our steps. Isaiah 30, 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Now earlier I referenced a comment that ignorance is instructed. The word ignorance has long been a polarizing one. As children, it was often used in a derogatory manner toward others. It was intended to insult what we perceive to be their lack of intelligence. In reality, ignorance represents a lack of knowledge or being uninformed. It is merely an acknowledgement that we know so very little in the grand scheme of things. And there needs to be an admission on our part that we need to be led and directed. And here we see God graciously answering David's concern by presenting himself as the all-sufficient guide. God's promise to extend and deepen our understanding is in a personal way. God's promise of instruction is constant. He stands ready to guide us throughout our lives. In other words, he's there for the duration. And his method of teaching is practical. It's personal. The plan that he has for you may differ than the one he has for me. And the upshot of all of this is that God takes us as his students. What could be better than that? And the second part of the verse, I will counsel you with my eye upon you, suggests the closeness of God as counseling involves being in relationship. We would be foolish to ignore the wisdom of God and rely on our own knowledge. R.C. Sproul, in his message, The Joy of Forgiveness, comments that, quote, God's response to David's confession is not only forgiveness, but a promise to lead into the future. Charles Spurgeon was quoted as saying, Blessed are they who follow the Lamb. They have both the privilege of holy walk and heavenly company. We are not only to be told the way, and led into the way, but to be accompanied on it by our teacher and friend. End quote. In effect, we are receiving fellowship while obtaining instruction. The guide goes along with the traveler. And as for verse 9, try as we might to separate, uh, separate ourselves from this imagery, the reality is that we spend significant amounts of time displaying some of the characteristics of these very animals. In doing so, we choose to proceed without the use of our God-given sense of understanding and reason. The horse and mule possess none of that. Psalm 73, verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. So how do we imitate the horse and mule? By showing ourselves to be rebellious, Stubborn, resistant, mischievous, and unwilling to change. And when we are really dug in, we make no attempt to hide it. We exude a defiance as if we're shouting, nothing and no one will tie me down. And what happens to these animals in order to be used effectively? They need to be broken and tamed. The horse and mule tend to do what they ought not to. They are not easily controlled until the bit and bridle are in place. Now, the bridle is the headgear in which a horse is controlled. It consists of a bit, a headstall, and reins. The bit is a horizontal piece of metal or synthetic material that is inserted into a horse's mouth. The bit is then held in place by the headstall, which is a series of straps going over the head of the horse. It aids in the communication between the horse and rider. It allows the rider to connect with the horse by the use of the reins. So what should we do? Let me offer four steps. Humble ourselves. Acknowledge that we have a need to be led and directed. We do not have all of the answers. Don't let your stubbornness keep you from obeying God. Relax and don't resist. Psalm 46.10 tells us, be still and know that I am God. And lastly, don't be impulsive. Avoid the bit and bridle. God does not wish to use harsh methods in order to get our attention. And let me end with a quote from the Treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon, which reads, We were not pardoned just so we can live life after our own lusts, but we are to be educated in holiness, Servants take their cue from their masters. A wink or a nod is all they need. We should follow God's hints. We should not need thunderbolts to startle us. We should be controlled by whispers and loving touches. And we would be well served by being as a sheep in God's pasture, following the guidance of his wisdom.
4: As I adjust this microphone to reach me, would you please turn to Isaiah 12, Isaiah chapter 12. We'll get to it, keep your spot in Psalm 32, but turn to Isaiah 12, and let me just start by saying I'm very, very excited and happy to be here. When Ed invited me um, to preach and to teach here, I was first very glad and rejoiced, and second, I groaned because he told me I was only able to talk for seven minutes. Now, this is like someone inviting you to their house and saying, I'm going to cook you your favorite meal, but you can only have one bite. I feel like that's cruel, but I've been given one bite, so it's going to be a big one, as big as my mouth is capable of taking in seven minutes. So, with Isaiah 12 bookmarked, um, we'll, I'll read to you just these, uh, well, the first verse that I have is verse 10 of Psalm 32. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So my first point and only point is the wicked are sorrowful. The faithful are surrounded. The wicked are sorrowful. The faithful are surrounded. Now the wicked, the, the sorrow The agony, the despair that they uh, have come upon or has come upon them is a result of pride and self-reliance, arrogance, boasting, a lack of humbleness. And we can read uh, in another Psalm in verse, in chapter 36, um, just how true this is and where it all stems from. It says in Psalm 36, verse 1 through 4, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The recompense, the repayment For this individual's rebellion is agony, it's despair, it's sorrow. There is a level of pride that is a burden to them. And in many ways, they're willfully ignorant of it. It says, he flatters himself, God bless you. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Because, as we heard, when you come to know that your iniquity is wretched, it's a burden, you will naturally hate it. But when you cover it up, you are blinding yourself. You are lying to yourself. And that's a perilous thing. Now contrast this, as David says, with the faithful or the one who trusts in the Lord. And notice it's very important that your trust must be in the Lord, not in yourself. It's in direct contrast to this wicked. The faithful, the one who trusts in the Lord, they are surrounded by an unwavering, loyal, and steadfast love that comes from the Lord. Notice it's derived from the Lord, not from within, not from yourself. Psalm 37 directs us, exhorts us. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So my question to you this morning is, in whom do you trust? Do you trust yourself? Do you look inwardly to yourself as your savior as the one who's going to conquer all of your wrongs, as the one who's going to be um, the redeemer for all of your sins? Or do you look to the Lord, the one who is more capable? I'll give you an illustration that I hope will help you to understand this a little bit more and drive home the, the stark contrast between these two people. Imagine for a moment you're sitting outside on the lawn in front of church. This part's easy. And over your head swoops this dark and heavy cloud. And right behind it comes this strong gust of wind, and it has this very fierce updraft. And as this draft goes up, down fall pieces of hail. First, the sizes of specks, then golf balls, then baseball sizes of hail start falling. What do you do? Where you're sitting, what do you do? Of course, you sit down. You put your hands above your head and you start swinging at hailstones to try to keep yourself from getting hit. No, you don't. You stand up and you rush through that door because you know instinctively, you know that your hands could in no way shield you and protect you from the flurry of hailstones that are coming out of the sky. No matter how skillful you are, no matter how adept you are with your hand-eye coordination, you could not. And so, in humbleness, you get up and you flee inside through this door. Why? Because you are confident and you know that the shelter and security that this building provides is greater than what your own hands could ever provide. And so, going back to the text, the wicked are sorrowful, the faithful are surrounded. Let me hammer this point home about how we are inadequate by ourselves and then get to um, the crux of it all. Psalm 33, verse 16 through 20, it says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Proverbs tells us, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. My dear saints, my fellow sinners, Jesus Christ is the door. He says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I'll repeat that. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That that forces you to come to terms with the reality that you cannot save yourself. You would not stand outside here or sit outside here with hail falling in sheets and buckets. You would not. In the same way, you would be foolish to assume that you are capable by your own hands to withstand the wrath of God for all of your sins. So this psalm urges us, God's word exhorts you, flee through the door, rush to safety. It is more secure than you will ever be by your own power. And so the natural application in verse 11, David tells us in Psalm 32 verse 11, he says, this is our response. Be glad in the Lord, in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Here's why we rejoice. Because God has put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as our propitiation. That is, he's the agent, the agent whose actions have regained God's favor. And appeased his wrath for the wrongs that we've committed. Hear me repeat this. He is our propitiation that God has put forth for you and I. His righteous deeds become your righteous deeds by faith. And your wretched deeds he takes upon himself. And he calls you. Enter through the door. Stop relying on yourself. Don't look to yourself. And those that are within that door will rejoice. Those that are abiding in Christ naturally will rejoice as they behold, wow, it turns out I wasn't capable of saving myself, but look how secure I am in Christ. Look at how rich I am in blessing and in safety and security. This all comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear sinner, we're going to get to Isaiah 12 as we close. Dear sinner, know your hands are not strong enough to save you. Confess that, acknowledge that, as we were exhorted by the men that preceded me. Do not cover up your sin, do not be arrogant, do not be prideful, because you will sorrow. The wicked are sorrowful, the faithful are surrounded, they are enveloped by the love of Christ. Isaiah 12, it's a perfect application, read it along with me, please. Isaiah 12, it says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. These are the words of a redeemed sinner. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. You will you will urge others. Give thanks to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the one who surrounds you with his saving, redeeming love. That is Jesus Christ. So dear sinner, Enter through the door that is Christ, and dear saint, those who have entered, abide in him and rejoice in him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, we praise your name because you have redeemed us. You alone by your mighty hand have rescued us. You have looked upon our faithful condition with great compassion and great mercy. And it is before your holy name that we confess we are unrighteous We are not worthy of what you offer, and yet your love is so great that you richly extend your arms, your hands, and you lay out in front of us this grace and mercy that will result in never-ending, everlasting joy and love in you. Father, may we abide in this, and may those that have not known this love pursue you and enter through this door and find salvation. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.